pray this evening. Hebrews chapter number 3. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 19. So we're going to finish up chapter 3 this evening. Uh, but we'll be, we're going to be looking at the sin of unbelief, uh, the sin of unbelief this evening. Uh, so let's go ahead and pray first, and then uh, we'll get into the message. But uh, let's, let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this day that you've given us, and I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to come together and um, look at your word, Lord. I pray that you would just help us to set aside any distracting thoughts we might have and focus on your word this evening. And Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and help us, Lord, to apply these truths to our life that we might leave here changed and uh, passionate about serving you and living for you and sharing the gospel with others, Lord, that they might be saved. And so I pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to leave here burdened uh, for the lost. And God, I ask that you would just help me to be emptied of self, Lord, and filled with your spirit. And God, I pray that you would do what only you can do this evening, and that's to speak to our hearts. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Uh, one of the greatest tra tragedies in the Old Testament was the disallowance of almost everyone, uh, every one of the Hebrews in the wilderness uh, who doubted God, it was the disallowance of them entering into the promised land. And you might be familiar with that story or remember that account of the uh, Hebrew people. They left the nation of Egypt. They were delivered uh, by Moses. And we know how God providentially raised up Moses to lead the Hebrew people out of bondage from the nation of Egypt. He was spared from death by the daughter of Pharaoh and raised to be the adopted grandson of Pharaoh. And for 40 years, Moses lived in Egypt, in the palace, learning the culture, knowing what it was to be Egyptian. But we know that Moses, he um, for a time, as a child, he was really raised by his mother. His mother took care of him, and I believe in that time frame, his mother taught him who he was and um, where he came from, that he wasn't an Egyptian, he was truly a Hebrew, and he was a descendant of Abraham and a child of God, and that God had a promise uh, for him as um, one of God's people. And so I believe that Moses grew up in Egypt knowing this, and we kind of see this uh, when Moses is about 40 years old. He's in Egypt, and he perhaps he's walking by, or uh, we don't know what he was doing, but he looks and he sees an uh, Egyptian master beating one of his Hebrew slaves. And Moses knows that that individual is, um, is one with him, and that they, he was also a Hebrew. And Moses identified with that slave that was being beaten, and it uh, it caused Moses to get angry and to get upset at this injustice that was happening to his people and to uh, the Hebrew people that he was a part of. And so we know Moses, what he does, he grabs a rock or whatever he grabs and he kills that um, master. And, uh, and then he fears for his life because he knows he's going to get caught and he knows um, he's going to be arrested and he's going uh, he, to have to face the consequences for this. And so what does Moses do? He flees. He runs out of Egypt, he goes into the backside of the desert, and he spends about 40 years there as well. And this is where Moses begins to mature, and his spirit sort of 
settles down. He doesn't, uh, he's not led by anger anymore. He, he, he starts to grow in maturity, and he learns from his father-in-law. Um, he gets married here, and God teaches him some great lessons in the desert. And it's there in the desert that, uh, towards the end of his time there, where God calls Moses to go back to Egypt, to go back to the place he left, because God was going to use him to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And of course, Moses gives his excuses. I can't speak well. I'm not a good talker. I'm not um, fluent. But God uses him anyway. And, and Moses goes back bravely, by the way, and with Aaron. And um, he, he goes to Pharaoh, and he demands time and again, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses time and again. And God miraculously delivers uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea, and Moses leads them across and uh, into the wilderness. And that's, uh, Moses has a, a very hard time in the wilderness leading the people of Israel from that point forward. And I believe if, uh, if everything that Moses had to do while he was in the wilderness, if every one of Moses' responsibilities and every problem that he faced, if you wrote those down on a job description and put it on Indeed or Google, you know, right now I'm searching for a job. If I saw the, the description of Moses' job pop up and I had read what you had to do and what you would face, I would not want to take part of that uh, job. He had to face a lot of complaints. He had to face a lot of uh, people angry at him and wanting him to be replaced. And so we read about how the, the Hebrew people that Moses is leading, it's during this time that they began to complain and to murmur and to backbite and to desire to go back into slavery in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, we read about their complaint in the wilderness of sin. The Hebrew people there, they were upset that they had no bread, and so they started to complain to Moses. I uh, wish we could go back into Egypt, where we never lacked bread. We always had enough to eat. Moses, why'd you take us out here? Why'd you not just leave us in Egypt? And so, despite their murmuring, God sends manna from heaven with very specific instructions on how they were to collect the manna, how much they were to collect, and how soon they were to eat the manna. And so, God provides for their need and for their complaint despite their complaint. But uh, that doesn't satisfy them. They continue to murmur and complain. And so, from the wilderness of sin... They continue on. If you read the account, they go to a place called Rephidim. And when they get there, they start to complain again. And this time that they have no water. And they begin to complain about how God's not taking care of them. And they want to be back in Egypt where they had enough water. The Nile River was there. there was, uh, they never had to thirst. They had all the water they could ever want. And they complain. And, uh, and so God, despite their complaints, in his mercy, tells Moses to strike the rock. And Moses does that. This is the first time, by the way. Moses strikes the rock, and water comes out. And God takes care of his people, just as he promised to do, despite their complaint. Because God loves them, and God is merciful. But they continue in their complaint, and they continue in their rebellion. From Rephidim, they travel to the wilderness of Sinai. And in perhaps their greatest uh, act of wilderness rebellion, the children of Israel, under the leadership of Aaron, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God, they form a golden calf. And they begin to worship that golden calf as God. 
even though God told them not to worship idols. And it was against God's law. They, why did they do this? Because they're complaining. Uh, they want something that they can see, like they saw in Egypt, that they can worship. They, they, they didn't see God with their eyes, and so they wanted to be like Egypt. They wanted a statue, an idol. Oh, they would say that this is God that they're worshiping, but it was not God. Uh, they're, they're commanded explicitly not to make a graven image, but they do it anyway. And Moses comes down off the mountain, confronts Aaron. They crush the statue uh, into powder. They make the people eat it that uh, worship this idol, and 3,000 of them are killed for their idolatry and their sin against God. And then God sends a plague on the people of Egypt, or uh, the people of Israel, his people. Yet God continued to show them mercy. After that, God tells Moses to carry on with their journey, that he's, gonna, he's still going to bring them into the promised land. He's still going to deliver them and answer his promise that he made to them. And so they, they leave the wilderness of Sinai, and they go to a place called Tabera, according to Numbers chapter 11 and verse 3. And it's there they begin to complain about the manna that God provided for them. And they, they start to say this manna is, is dull, it's boring, it's, it's, uh, it's not as uh, tasty as the leeks and the onions that we had in Egypt. And so they start to complain about the gift that God gave them, the gift of the manna. And what does God do despite their complaining? Uh, they, they wanted meat. They wanted something that they could uh, chew on, and God sends quail. Uh, so much quail that they don't know what to do with it. It's coming out their nose, the Bible says. Uh, not literally, but the idea there is they have so much, they don't know, they're swimming in it. They don't know what to do with it. So God takes care of their complaint. God gives them exactly what they wanted, meat, despite their complaining. One of, their last, uh, one of the last great times that they complain and uh, this isn't certainly all of the times, but probably the greatest act of rebellion is their refusal to enter the promised land on the outskirts of the promised land in a place called Kadesh Barnea. They're on the outskirts. Uh, they could see into the promised land, this place that God has promised to give them, uh, this place that uh, this is where they're going. They came out of Egypt to get here. And it's just on the other side of the river. They're almost there. But what do they do? We sing about this in Sunday school. They send out 12 spies, 10 bad, 2 good. And those spies, they go and spy out the land. They, they see, well, we know God promised us this land. We know God said that he's going to deliver it to us, that he's going to lead the way. But we need to make sure before we go in, we need to make sure that God is actually uh, he's not lying to us, that he's telling the truth, that this is a land that we can live in. And so in their arrogance, in their pride, they spy out the land to see whether or not what God said was true. And of course, the 10 spies come back and say, nope, the giants are too big. The people are too evil. We can't take this. Uh, we know the faithfulness of Joshua and Caleb. They said, no, God has promised that we can have this land. We should go. But they listened to the 10. And on the very precipice of entering into God's promised land of rest, they refuse and they say no. And they uh, do not get to partake in the promised land, at least that generation. You read about what happens, that they're, they're forced to wander in the wilderness for another almost 40 years. And they wander around because they refuse to enter into the promised land. And that entire generation dies. Uh, 
And the only ones who are allowed to enter into the promised land at the end of that another 40 years are Joshua and Caleb because they believed God. Those who were under 20 years old, uh, and, and some believe the, the tribe of Levi, uh, there's a case there, uh, but the vast majority of the people are refused entry into the promised land, even Moses himself. Not for a disbelief in God's promise, but a disobedience to God's command not to strike the rock. But he did it anyway. He allowed his anger, and I can't blame him, his frustration in leading these people who did not listen to him, who complained time and again. They were so close to the promised land, and because of their complaint, they had to wander. And Moses himself does not get to go into the promised land. And so why do we go over the account of the, the Exodus. What we see here in Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. So look at Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It says this, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, and here's the quote, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Uh, the author of Hebrews here, he's quoting, and you can read this, you can write this down, read it another time, Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. It's a direct quote. As we think about the testimony and the example of Israel's failure to believe God and the resultant refusal that allowed them to enter the promised land, uh, I want us to consider the point the author is making in this section of Hebrews, and that is the sin of unbelief, the sin of not believing God and not believing the gospel. Unbelief is a sin that will result in the inability to enter into the kingdom of God. We must examine our own lives and ask ourselves, do we believe the gospel? Do we believe God's word? That's what every person has to ask. Do they believe the gospel? Belief is essential to salvation. A person who does not believe the gospel cannot be saved. They must believe the gospel. And so there's much... There's much debate about what is called the un, unpardonable sin. And I, this is my belief, the unpardonable, I believe the unpardonable sin is the sin of dying in unbelief. Uh, the sin of dying in unbelief. Uh, a person, and I say dying because as long as somebody is living, there's hope for them to believe the gospel. As long as someone is breathing, there's hope for them to be saved, to be born again. But if you die in your sin without believing on Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. You must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved and enter the promised land of rest, which is heaven. And so when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? What was his reply? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, implying that unbelief would result in him not being saved. And so the warning here in our main text is more precisely about the idea of apostasy. Those who would profess with their mouth to believe in Christ, but then they go on 
in their life to one day deny Christ and completely reject Him and even fight against Christ and against the gospel. I know people in my life personally who once professed to believe in Christ, but now if you went to them, they're atheistic, they hate God, they hate Christians, they want nothing to do with God's Word, they do not love God, and they would say, I'm not a Christian, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. What are we to do with that? That's a, we don't hear much about it, but that's what is, the Bible refers to as apostasy. Uh, apostasy, And so it's important that we deal with what is apostasy. Um, <clears throat> apostasy is a, a rejection of, uh, of Christ. Uh, once professing Christ, but coming to reject Christ. Those who apostatize, they show they never possessed Christ in their life. They may have said it with their mouth, but it... He did not enter their heart. Uh, they didn't truly believe in Christ as their Savior. They had an exterior transformation, but not an interior transformation. And there's a lot of people in churches today that they, they, they change the outside, they follow all of the right rules, and they say all of the right things, and they know all of the right Christian jargon, but Christ has never done a work in their heart, and one day they completely deny Christ. They, they're, they're completely different. And we look at that and we question, what happened? Uh, why are they so different? They once, they once seemed to love God, but now they don't. It's because the, Christ never came into their heart and he, they were never truly born again. And so for a few moments, I want to consider the sin of unbelief and why it's deadly. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's the warning. Take heed. Pay attention to your own selves. Don't be worrying about everybody else, but examine your own hearts and your own, your own profession. Uh, you, again, uh, the author is writing to a group of people that are a part of a church, and uh, he's writing specifically to some when we get to Hebrews chapter 10, we'll see that he's writing to a group of people that have forsaken the assembling of themselves together. They seem to have forsaken the faith, and they're, they're seeming to depart from the Christian faith. And so he's writing to this church in general, but to those specifically in the church who seem to be uh, departing. And he's, at, he's telling them, take heed to yourselves, pay attention to what you're doing and how you're living and what you're saying and what you're professing. And he wants them to heed his warning. Uh, and he gives them the example of the children of Israel who were refused entry into the promised land because of unbelief. And so he warns this audience to take heed uh, for themselves. Their words perhaps said one thing, but their actions showed something else. Uh, they professed to have faith in the work of Jesus alone, but these specific individuals, they, they seem to be reverting to a faith in their own works to save them. They seem to be turning back to Judaism to save them, to a belief that they could save themselves by what they do, not by what Christ did for them. So, for one reason or another, uh, we see in our own life, uh, we, we might be able to think of examples of people that we know who seem to be in this same position, that they seem to have left the faith. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps it was out of convenience that a person once professed faith in Jesus. How many young people grow up in a Christian home with parents who love the Lord, but those children never make their faith personal to themselves? 
Uh, they grow up, they get on their own, they turn away from Christianity completely. They know all the lingo, they know all the right words, uh, but that's all it was to them. Lingo, words, it wasn't reality. Christ was never real to them. They know how to fit in and make people happy, but when they get on their own, then now they want to make their own decisions and live apart from the Lord. There are those who make a profession of faith in Jesus, and for a time they, they seem to be excited about the things of God, but uh, they, trials come into their life. Hardships come, and they get angry and bitter at God, and soon they hate God, and they hate God's Word, and they hate God's people, and they reject God, and they resist God. We see these things happen around us all the time, and it's a scary thing to see happen. The good news for that person, though, who is an apostate, is that salvation is still available to that person. They may not have truly believed in Christ. They may not have been truly born again, but they're, they are not without hope. And Christ still died for them. And Christ still has salvation available for that person. As long as that person who we look at and we say they, they're completely gone, they're completely hopeless. Christ doesn't say they're hopeless. Christ gave his life for them. And so we shouldn't give up hope on people who Jesus hasn't give up, given up hope on. We might be able to think of loved ones or people that we care about who are far gone, and we say they're hopeless. Salvation is still available to that person. The question is, do you pray for them? Do you care for them? Do you have a heart for them to be saved? Do you, do you ask the Holy Spirit to, to work in their heart and help them to repent of their sin and, and, and turn back to, the, uh, to faith in Christ and trust in Him? It is not too late for them as long as they have breath in their lungs. This evening, though, we need to take heed, examine our own hearts. If we say we love God, we need to live for God, and we need to trust Him, and we need to be careful that we don't live in sin and turn away from, from professing faith in Christ. So we see uh, the sin, or the heart of unbelief, rather. Number two, the encouragement to exhort one another. The encouragement to exhort one another. In verse 13 and 14. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. There are several themes repeated in the book of Hebrews. And one of those common themes in the book of Hebrews is the importance of gathering together for worship, gathering together as the church. And that's the reason it's a common theme is because there were those in this church who were neglecting to do that, and so the author has to address that issue. Uh, but we see the importance here of exhorting one another daily. And you can't do that as a church unless you're gathering. You need to be present and in the midst of, uh, of one another to exhort each other. Uh, and so one of the reasons that we're told that we need to gather as a church, one of the reasons we gather as a church, you and I, we gather faithfully, hopefully weekly. One of the reasons we do that is to safeguard against apostasy in our own life. Uh, we need to be accountable to the church in our life. Christ does not call us to live the Christian life as a lone ranger. We're called to live in fellowship with one another, in communion with one another. We're called to serve alongside and serve each other in the church as believers. We're called to exhort 
and encourage one another in the faith to challenge each other to faithfulness to Christ. The individual that professes faith in Jesus, yet they refuse to gather with the church, they're in danger of apostasy by many means, by false teaching that they hear online because they're not in church, so they have to get their teaching somewhere, and they fall into some false belief, some false idea, uh, and they start to believe a, a false gospel. Uh, those who do not come together with the church to be encouraged and exhorted deceive themselves. They convince themselves that they're okay and they're right in their understanding, and they're right in their understanding of doctrine because I don't need the church. I know the Bible myself, and I don't need to hear the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. And they deceive themselves. Why do they deceive themselves? Because they're listening to themselves, and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so why do we have the church? We have the church to exhort us when we're listening to our own hearts, and our own hearts are leading us away from the Word of God, and leading us into sin, and leading us into error. And so hopefully we have a Christian family who encourages us, and exhorts us to get back to where we need to be, to get back to truth, to get back to the Word of God. Christians need fellowship and encouragement with other Christians. We need doctrinal accountability to a church that is bound to the Word of God. You cannot live your life as a Christian with, uh, faithfully without uh, being faithful to the church that God has placed you in. Be faithful to church. Be faithful to church. A Christian without a church is like a sheep without a flock. Uh, in danger of wolves, in danger of the weather and storms and trials, without a shepherd, without a guide that will lead them to where they need to feed, and that is the Word of God. A Christian needs the church. Don't make it a choice or an option. Go to church. Be faithful to church. We need, so uh, we need to hold fast. Uh, in verse 14, it says here, uh, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence, steadfast unto the end. We need to remain faithful to Christ and faithful to His Word and faithful to the truths of Scripture. So we see uh, here the need to exhort one another. We need to exhort one another so we don't fall danger to this idea of apostasy. And finally, we see the result of unbelief. The result of unbelief in 15 through 19. While it is said, and this is a quote again, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. That word provocation means rebellion. Uh, it's referring again to Israel, rebelling against God, refusing to enter into the promised land, refusing to obey him. They rebelled against him. They provoked God. They provoked his wrath uh, because of their unbelief, because of their unfaithfulness. Uh, verse 16, for some, when they had heard, did provoke. Not all, some. How, and then it says, Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. There were some that were faithful, Caleb and Joshua, um, perhaps the tribe of Levi. And uh, again, those who were refused entry didn't include those under 20. So there were some. Verse 17, but with whom? And verse 17 through 19 is a series of rhetorical questions. And the answer is those who did not believe. Okay, so these are rhetorical questions. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? Those who didn't believe. Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? 
Verse 18, And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Verse, uh, verse, verse 15 reminds us of the danger of hardening our heart. And how do we harden our hearts? We harden our hearts uh, through sin, the deceitfulness of sin. When we continually partake in sin and we do not confess that sin, but rather we joy in that sin, we take pleasure in that sin, we live for that sin, we allow that sin to dictate our life and our choices instead of Christ, uh, just as the children of Israel did. They weren't following God uh, with a grateful heart. They were complaining and following their sin and their own appetites. And so we harden our hearts when we continually partake in sin and we love our sin and we follow our sin instead of the Lord. We harden our hearts. And that's what the Hebrews did in the wilderness. They continually complained and murmured. There are, uh, and so, so I, uh, I believe, uh, sorry, uh, here we see that we need to be careful of sin in our life. Sin uh, leads to a hardening of our heart. Rather, we need to walk in faith and walk in obedience to the Lord and walk in the Spirit. The simple reason that uh, the Hebrews could not enter, that were not allowed to enter again, was because of unbelief. And that is the truth for heaven as well. Those who do not believe, as we said in the beginning, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who do not believe the gospel message, cannot enter into the permanent land of rest, cannot enter into heaven. Over and over, we read that repentance and faith in Jesus is the way of salvation. We must believe in Jesus Christ. He alone is our hope of salvation. A person must believe in Him to be saved. And so, I believe most of us here, I would hope that most of us here would profess to be saved and believe in Jesus Christ. And so, uh, I'm not going to emphasize the need to believe for salvation, but for those of us who, here who say we are saved and we believe in Jesus Christ, well, are we loving the Lord like we profess to love the Lord, uh, like we profess to say? We say we love Christ, but, but do, does our life show it? If I say that I love Sarah, and I do, I love her, but if I say that, and I go to, go, and I go on to lie to Sarah, I go on to mistreat her, not talk with her, not show her affection, not listen to her, not bother to pay any attention to her. Well, first of all, I would be living somewhere else. <laughs> I would be living in the doghouse. If I said I love Sarah, and I did all those things, I refused to love her, I refused to show my love to her, I would show that I don't actually love her, though I say I love her. How many do that with Jesus? They say they love Jesus. They talk, oh yeah, I love Jesus. They lie. Uh, they, they never talk to Jesus. They never read His Word. They never spend time with Him. Uh, they, they don't care about what He thinks. They don't, uh, they don't care to ask, what would Jesus have me do with my life today? Uh, they don't seek His leading in their life. They don't even think about Jesus. They can go weeks without even thinking about what He desires for them. Does that person really love Jesus? They say they do, but does their life show it? Uh, and so, as believers who profess that we love the Lord, do we love the Lord? Are we living like it? And we need to leave here, not just talking about our love for the Lord, but, but living it. Living our love for Christ. Are we living for the love for Jesus? And if we are, and I hope we are, are we telling others about Him? About how they can know Him? About how they can receive His love? 
about the gospel message so they can be saved and enter that promised land of rest, which is heaven. The sin, and un the sin of unbelief is a sin that uh, any person can, can commit. Any person can be unsaved, but also uh, any person who does not believe can come to a belief in the gospel. But the question is, how will those who are lost hear if we do not preach it? In the Romans, you find that series of questions. How will they hear without a preacher? Um, how, will they, how, how will they preach except they be sent? And so as the church, it's our responsibility to go out into the world to those who don't believe and to tell them what they need to believe in, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our responsibility to go into the world so that they can be saved, so that they can believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so that they can have a relationship with the Lord. This evening, we need to, be care we need to examine our own hearts, our own love for the Lord, and then we need to be busy about telling others about Him. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this evening that you've given us and for this reminder of the example of the children of Israel that did not believe your promise and they were refused entry. Lord, if there is someone